Welcome everyone to another session of the Gastroenterology Learning Network. Uh, I am Alan Bonner, one of the main editors of the Hepatology section, and I have the pleasure to have uh, Dr. Juan Pablo Arab, who is a world expert in alcoholic liver disease. Um, he is an associate professor of medicine. He is originally from Chile. He just moved to Canada. And then, so Juan Pablo, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here and hopefully have a really good discussions and answer some questions that we have in the hepatology world. Thank you very much, uh, Alan, for inviting me, and thank you everyone that is listening today. To start, Juan Pablo, I think we've seen this new trend in alcoholic liver disease. I think what we've seen in the clinics or in the hospitals, in the transplant world, that we've seen a change in our patient population from alcoholic liver disease. Can you comment a little bit what's going on? What are we facing on a day-to-day? And what do you think we are doing on a day-to-day in the hepatology world? Yeah, this is true. Indeed, 43% of the global population consume alcohol. And then uh, between 5-6% of them will have an alcohol use disorder, which is basically not only consuming alcohol, but having um, mental issues with the alcohol consumption, social issues, and that can lead to alcohol-related liver disease. 90% of the people that consume alcohol heavily will develop hepatic steatosis. Of those, between 20 and 40% will develop advanced form of the disease with fibrosis, which is the scarring of the liver. And of those, between 10, 20% will develop cirrhosis, which is the advanced scarring of the liver, including all the complications such as liver cancer. Uh, At any point of the disease, uh, uh, patients can also develop what we call alcohol-associated hepatitis, which is inflammatory form with very high mortality, up to 50% at three months. Uh, Alcohol-related liver disease has been very frequent. In the past, it was probably kind of a neglected disease due to the stigma, but now we are realizing that these numbers are not, not only are not improving, indeed are worsening. In the parts we used to see mainly uh, people in their 60s uh, drinking heavily every day, uh, what we call chronic alcohol consumption. But now most of the patients are younger patients in their 30s or 40s. Uh, we are seeing an special increase on uh, uh, females over males and also in ethnic minorities, I had, such as Hispanics or Latinos will have a higher risk of developing complication of the alcohol use. What is clear is that uh, alcohol-related liver disease is increasing, especially in the most severe forms, including alcohol-associated hepatitis. Indeed, 77.4% of the population that is hospitalized for alcohol-associated hepatitis are young or females, between 17 years old and 35 years old. We need to take this into account when we are interviewing patients in our liver clinics, for example, for elevated liver function tests, or when we found steatosis, which is fatty liver in an ultrasound. Sometimes we think about NAFLD, which is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, but we shouldn't forget that uh, alcohol-related liver disease is very prevalent. So I think you bring a good point, Juan Pablo. And I think number one is we can divide our conversation. So what are we doing as an outpatient and what are we doing as an inpatient? I think the main question is right now is hepatologists. We do feel, I would say, uncomfortable using all the medications to basically cut the cravings for alcohol consumption. Is there 
anything you want to discuss about, for example, here in Boston, I would say most of us will not be comfortable prescribing a camperseed or naltrexone. Is, is there any comment from your end to see, is there, you know, should we hepatologists be more comfortable prescribing these medications in our day-to-day clinics? Every time that I, especially when I talk to my fellows, say when you have a patient with ALD, you need to take into account that before the liver is damaged, the brain is already damaged. And what the, the alcohol does in the brain is the same that uh, cigarettes or marijuana does in the brain. It's basically, is pushing the, the reward cycle and basically is pushing the same battle all over again. The first sign of alcohol use disorder is loss of control. So when the patient tells you that they were planning to drink one can of beer and then they ended up uh, drinking the full six pack of beer, then you need to think that that patient is having loss of control and having an alcohol use disorder. And then when they have uh, seeking behavior to try to find alcohol or failing to compel with uh, social uh, work activities, family activities, all those are criteria of alcohol use disorder. We as a gastroenterologist and hepatologist, I think we are failing in treating this patient in an holistic way. We are treating the liver disease and we are good at that, but we are neglecting the psychiatric comorbidity, which is the alcohol use disorder. The problem is it's not realistic to expect that every patient will see an addiction specialist or an addiction psychiatrist. And the other thing that I also uh, tell my fellows is the bond that uh, that you develop with your patients is a strong. They will trust you. Sometimes many of these patients, you met them in the inpatient with a variceal bleeding or an acute alcohol-associated hepatitis. They were very sick and they trust you. So you need to use that to leverage the trust in helping them to deal with the alcohol use disorder. There is a study from the VA that showed that from all VA patients with cirrhosis due to alcohol, only 1.4% of them are receiving treatment for alcohol use disorder. That's bad. This is not only like for the hepatologists. There is one study in the UK showing how many times uh, general practitioners or family doctors ask the patient in the last five years about alcohol consumption is between three and 10%. So most of the patients are never asked about alcohol consumption. So I think we are failing. And then from a hepatology perspective, and we're not being trained to treat these patients. So we don't feel comfortable uh, treating them. Indeed, we did a a survey from the alcohol-related liver disease special interest group at the ASLD. And we found that most of the hepatologists are not prescribing AUD medication because they don't know how to use it and they don't feel comfortable. So we need to train. A couple of tips are clinical pairs. So number one is the old one is the sulfiram, but usually we are not going to use it because it's contraindicated in cirrhosis. Probably you have also had a couple of patients that were prescribed the sulfiram they were cirrhotics and they develop acute liver failure. So tip number one is don't use isulfiram in patients with advanced liver disease. Then the other options, FDA approved, we have two. One is naltrexone, one is acamprosep. 
Naltrexone is good. Uh, it's especially useful in patients that has opioid uh, use disorder comorbidity. It's very useful for um, reducing cravings, so achieving abstinence, but also to maintaining abstinence. And you have two ways to administer this. One is 50 milligrams oral daily, and the other one is uh, you can use it also 380 milligrams in, intramuscular once a month. And you need to monitor. The only thing is be careful with naltrexone in patients with advanced liver disease. I, for example, I don't use it in patients child C, only child A or low child B. That's naltrexone. The other FDA approved is acamprosate. This is also first line for the uh, psychiatric association. It's not as good in achieving abstinence, but it's very good maintaining abstinence. The only problem is the dosing because it's three times per day. So it's very difficult for the patient to be compliant with uh, taking a medication uh, three times per day. And this is 666 milligrams. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. This weird dosage, but that's the dosage for acamprosate. Easy to remember. Main issue with acamprosate is very often produced diarrhea, but most importantly, it is metabolized and excreted uh, by the kidney. So don't use it in patients with kidney function, I would say less than 30 uh, ml per minute. Uh, also, you can use topiramate. Baclofen has a old trial in Lancet in 2007 that show very good benefits. In my own experience, sometimes patients are, it's difficult to tolerate baclofen because of fatigue or dizziness, sleepiness, or dry mouth, and they tend to stop the medication, but it's also useful. And the one that I'm using every time more is gabapentin. It's a second line drug, but it's very useful when you have uh, concurrent chronic pain, for example. It's very safe to use. So I use it. Usually the dose goes from 300 to 600 milligrams, also three times per day. But you can start, and usually I start 300 in the morning, 600 at night. So uh, the patient doesn't feel sleepy during the day and you get the benefit of the medication. And then you try to try to take up is very good also for craving, so uh, helping the patient to achieve abstinence. And just one more comment, this is the pharmacological treatment, but to be honest, even more than the pharmacological treatment, the most effective intervention are on the side of behavioral therapy. This is cognitive uh, behavioral therapy or motivation and enhancement therapy, telling the patient, uh, so you had this uh, gastrointestinal bleeding, and you know that alcohol is producing that bleeding, you were very sick, and you say that you don't want to die, but on the other hand, you want to keep drinking. So how that makes you feel? So basically showing that he's being ambivalent regarding something that he know that he needs to do, but the alcohol use disorder is not allowing him to do it. And the other thing that we can do without being addiction specialist is brief interventions. We need to identify in which part of the cycle the patient is. So when they are in a pre-contemplative stage, probably they are not going to make any change. You should ask, you know that this elevation of your liver function tests are likely secondary to alcohol. How do you feel about that? Or have you ever think about 
uh, quit drinking or have someone ever tell you that you should stop drinking or that uh, some of you are probably maybe related to alcohol. So you are triggering the patient to get into and start thinking about quitting alcohol. They making plans, then making an action and then maintaining abstinence. And this is this is great information, Juan Pablo. I think the thing, as you mentioned, is I think we we lack or we are actually not doing a really good job about treating the alcoholic liver disorders in our liver clinics. Be sure to watch for part two of this podcast with Drs. Alan Bonder and Juan Pablo Arab as they continue their conversation about the treatment of alcohol use disorder and alcohol-related liver disease.